1: 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So April, I am curious, when you think of a house party, what comes to mind? Well, I think that would lead me back to the good old days of
2: college. You know, (laughs) way too many people crowded into your friend's, like, crappy rundown house. There's definitely a keg somewhere. Everyone is smoking, so when you wake up, you in the next morning, your hair smells (laughs) like smoke. And usually at the end of the night, you're searching for your bag, perhaps a little intoxicated, under everyone's giant pile of coats. So. That's my concept of a house party.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and being from New Mexico, my house party standards are quite relaxed as well. So if somebody invites me to a house party today... I would show up about an hour late, (laughs) and I'd probably be casually dressed, um, nicely, but casually dressed, and I'd bring a bottle of wine or flowers. But such was not the case in the era of George and Edith Vanderbilt, whose hospitality and week-long house parties at their Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, were renowned. Anyone who has
2: seen Downton Abbey knows that house parties for affluent families at the turn of the 20th century
1: were no small affair, and the Vanderbilts were absolutely no exception. No, they were not. In fact, they probably set the standard for the period in America because George Vanderbilt's majestic 250-room French Renaissance chateau inspired home is the closest we will get to a castle in America. Biltmore has been the home of many fantastic fashion-related exhibitions over the years, including last year's blockbuster, Glamour On Board, Fashion from Titanic the Movie, The estate's current exhibition, A Vanderbilt House Party, The Gilded Age, is particularly exciting and special because it highlights the clothes worn by the Vanderbilt family and their house guests. But perhaps not in the way you might think. Staged at all levels of the house, from the downstairs
2: butler's kitchen and the swimming pool, to Edith Vanderbilt's bedroom, the garments are reproductions of those found in historical photographs of the Vanderbilts, their friends, and their family. And these ensembles were painstakingly researched and then recreated by the Academy Award-winning designer John Bright and his incredible team at Cosprop London, the world's leading costume house for film, TV, and theater.
1: And at the invitation of Biltmore, I recently had the pleasure of attending the exhibition where I met with Biltmore's Curator of Interpretation, Leslie Klingner, the woman responsible for giving guests a glimpse into the era in which the Vanderbilt family lived. And I am thrilled to welcome Leslie to the show today. Leslie, welcome to Dressed. Leslie, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks
2: so much for having me.
1: I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little bit about your job as Curator of Interpretation of Biltmore.
0: Sure, I'd be pleased to. So I have a really fascinating job. I'm in charge of working with our story at Biltmore and digging through our archives, learning more about the Vanderbilt family, the people who lived on the estate, um, the history of the time period, and then building stories and exhibitions that convey what life was like at Biltmore for our many guests.
1: It's a very, very fun job. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. And for those of us who might not know, who was George Vanderbilt?
0: So George is a really interesting character. He is the youngest son of William Henry Vanderbilt. William Henry Vanderbilt was you know, one of the 19th century gilded age collectors and businessmen. He had inherited a business and quite a lot of wealth from his father, Cornelius, or some people know him as the Commodore Vanderbilt, who made his fortune in shipping and railroads. His son, William Henry, George's father, doubled that fortune, went on to really build a tremendous network of railroads across the United States. And his children, kind of many of his children, followed in his footsteps. Now, George, being the youngest of those, kind of got in on the latter part of his father's life, where he was an art collector and building a fabulous collection, much of which is at the Metropolitan Museum, and traveling abroad. And so he really helped sculpt George's interests in collecting, in artists, in writing And George Vanderbilt went on to become really a well-recognized intellectual and book collector, print collector. And while he inherited his parents' home in New York City, he built his dream house here in Western North Carolina.
1: Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about how he came to build Biltmore? That's kind of a lovely story.
0: Oh, it really is. So he originally arrived in Western North Carolina um, with his mother. His mother was being treated for pulmonary respiratory diseases. And Asheville was really known as a center, not only as a resort, but a place where you would come and take the air. Um, but there were a lot of people treating respiratory diseases here. And I think that's how he originally became familiar with the area. And then he just fell in love with the beauty of the mountains. And so he began amassing acreage. Um, it's hard to imagine. He put together more than 125,000 acres. So just this tremendous, beautiful land, much of which had been thoroughly cut down, was really, had been over farmed. um, But he kind of brought a plan back together, invested in forestry and putting together a forestry program, invested in agriculture and built this really beautiful retreat uh, in the middle of Western North Carolina.
1: And it's amazing, I think, that George was a bachelor when he was doing this and building his majestic home.
0: <laughs> he was. So on yeah. these 125,000 acres, he built the largest home. It remains the largest private home in America. And it's really the scale of it, as you probably when first experienced, it's really hard to get your head around until you've come here for the first time. So it is more than four acres under one roof. Wow. And he did, indeed, he did this as a bachelor. So he built it as a place where his family and where his friends could come. And ultimately, he did share it with a bride and then later a daughter as well. But it's still hard to imagine a home of this size, um, really just serving a family of three.
1: Yeah. Can you please tell us about the lovely Edith and how he met her and their courtship, which is très romantique
0: It is. It is indeed. So as you can imagine, being one of eight that inherited his father's wealth, he was certainly one of the more eligible bachelors in the 1890s. And he met Edith Stuyvesant Dresser, who was up at the New York Stuyvesant family. They were very much in the same social set. And met probably through family. He probably knew her before they really started to court. But their romance really blossomed on um, transatlantic trips. And George was sitting for portraits with famous artists like Whistler. And they were sort of planning trips. And I think in time, their love really grew. And so they were engaged um, in the late spring of 1898 and married in the summer. And then came back. They went on a four-month honeymoon, as one does, and then came back to Biltmore and made it their main home in October of 1898.
1: And then when was their daughter, Cornelia, born? Because they only had one child. They did. So Cornelia
0: was born just in 1900. This was really her home. She grew up with this entire estate as her backyard.
1: Wow. So Edith and George were really known for their hospitality, and they hosted many wonderful house parties at Biltmore Estate during the Gilded Age. Exactly. (laughs) Which is the point of this exhibition. Um, They're the subject of Biltmore's current exhibition, A Vanderbilt House Party, The Gilded Age, on view until May 27th. And that's what we're really here to talk about today. But I'm pretty sure that this is not the same informal event that comes to mind when we think of house parties today. Can you tell us about a house party in the Gilded Age?
0: Sure. When we started organizing this exhibition, we thought oh, are people going to think about Animal House? Are they going to think about, (laughs) you know, know, the wild house parties that we went to, you know, as as young adults, perhaps, um, but house party in the Gilded Age was an entirely different sort of affair. It really refers to the group of people rather than a single event and that the group of people are arriving. So it was more about your guests and it built more. We were removed, you know, from kind of everyday social life. So people would come down on the train. In some cases, George Vanderbilt sent his own private rail car to New York or Newport um, or DC, Boston, and brought friends down, or sometimes they had their own rail cars, and they would be attached to the back of trains, arrive in um, little Biltmore, North Carolina. They'd be met by George's horse and carriage and then brought up Um, to the front of the house. And it would really be this amalgamation of guests that formed the house party. So you could stay maybe just for the weekend or some people stayed one to two weeks, maybe even a little bit longer. And here at Biltmore, it was more the literati that were here, more than the, there were some of that sort of 400 set, Mm -hmm. um, but it was more the writers and the artists, people interested in conservation, print collectors. You know, we had guests like Edith Wharton who came several times to Biltmore, Henry James came once for a very small house party. It's more the type of entertainment that you see in in those sorts of books, in Wharton's books or in James' books that went on at Biltmore.
1: And there's really uh, strict rules of clothing etiquette that were observed at these house parties. Again, something that's really hard for us to imagine today, but so central was what you wore to your daily existence, especially as a woman of this certain social strata. So Women are changing up to seven times a day. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Oh, sure. So you'd be arriving um, with huge numbers of trunks. You would have, you know, accessories to match every outfit as well. So you can just imagine different shoes, different hats, Everything that you would need. And at a place like Biltmore, it's all built around recreation. So you would have been golfing here, you would have been trail riding, you would have been carriage riding, you would have been, you know, we have pictures of our guests playing croquet out in the gardens, you would have been going out for walks. And then you would also have been having formal meals, particularly in the banquet hall. So you would have needed outfits for each of these. So, I mean, as you mentioned, you could be changing six or seven times a day, just depending on what you're doing, because we also had. Even when weather was inclement, we had an indoor bowling alley, indoor swimming pool. So there were all of these activities and there would have been certain clothes for each activity of the day.
1: So fascinating to think about and to imagine what these women looked like on a daily basis is wonderful.
0: (laughs) It helps me understand why they had ladies' maids. So you would be you know, waking up in in one and you'd be changing from your silk robe and breakfasting perhaps in your room or dressing to go down for breakfast. And that would be a certain outfit. You'd be changing again for a walk in the garden, perhaps changing again to share lunch, changing for a different activity in the afternoon, then again for afternoon tea. It helps you understand why someone needs to be preparing all of his clothing. And then when you see the delicate closures and, you know, the tight-laced corsets, you understand why you need someone helping you for each stage of this dressing.
1: Yeah. And just to imagine to the planning that goes into any day, having to know what the woman that you're assisting is going to be doing. And then it it went for the men too, because the valets um, obviously were helping um, the men plan their ensembles for the day.
0: It would be pretty exciting to be doing at one of these house parties. And then with our mountain weather changes quite quickly. So you'd really have to be staying on top of it because you'd want to relieve people of those duties. You know, you would want everything to be seamless for them.
1: Right. And so the exhibition that's currently on view really helps to highlight these different, different types of clothing that was worn at these house parties. The exhibit features over 50 ensembles throughout the house, and it's actually the fifth fashion-focused exhibit in Biltmore's history. Past exhibits include the widely popular Fashion on Board, the Titanic exhibit from last year that I was able to attend, and then Downton Abbey. But what makes this exhibition particularly special?
0: So those we were drawing from primarily from films and we wanted so much. Fillmore has such a rich history and a rich story and George Vanderbilt and Edith Vanderbilt are such interesting people. And the people who are visiting here were so interesting that we wanted something really that could tell our own story. And so in thinking about that, one thing that, w- that we have um, that does that wonderfully are our photographs. But we wanted to take it to a different a higher level and really help bring the house more to life. And so what we did is we looked at archival photographs and drew from them, and then worked with John Bright, who is a Oscar-winning costume designer, to recreate the actual clothing that the Vanderbilts and their guests wore at Biltmore during
1: some of these house parties. Which is so cool. So you're essentially looking at the rich archive of historical photographs at Biltmore and bringing these garments to life. And as you mentioned, you did so with John Bright and his amazing team at Cosprop London. So Cosprop was founded by John in 1965 and has since grown into the world's leading costume house for period film, television, and theater. So can you tell us a little bit more about that collaboration? Because John is stationed in London. Was there a lot of back and forth uh, across the pond?
0: There was. We had already developed a working relationship with John and with his team at CosProp because he actually, his team created the costumes for the first four seasons of Downton Abbey. And so I was really familiar with his work. And we had borrowed from their exhibitions collection in the past. We had developed this really strong working relationship with him. And when we imagined undertaking a project like this, we needed someone very well-versed in this time period. And that's really John's expertise. He really created um, so many of the period films that have helped define the Gilded Age for us visually. So films that, you know, the very romantic films that you think of, the Merchant Ivory films, John has been a key designer on. And so when we approached him about undertaking a project like this, Um, We were a little nervous because I don't know that anything like this has been done in a historic house in a museum before where costumes have been created at this detail and at this level. And then it, it was a little bit different from what he's done in the past in terms of it's a little bit different than costume design for film. But we were thrilled when John said yes and then personally undertook the project. We couldn't really believe that we were so lucky to be working with him. Um, but so the project did involve a lot of back and forth. But we first started just with the photographs and with um, sending them to London, scanning and giving the highest resolution that we could and then really zeroing in on the details and really searching our archives for any mention of fabrics that we could find, any correlation with color. We even had a few samples of fabrics that we had in the collection that had been found in various drawers, sample books, things like that. We took measurements of extant clothing that that is still in our collection. We were able to draw from colors that we know that Edith Vanderbilt loved. And so we started giving all of that information, everything that we could find, even references in newspapers to John, so he could have as much information to work with to begin creating these designs. And it's very much like creating a whole look for a film.
1: Absolutely. And it's, I thought it was really cool. I think you talked about having to reference their passports to kind of gain insight into George and Edith Vanderbilt's sizes. So that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, their heights and all of that. We did have to, you know, some of that information didn't correlate quite perfectly with other things that we had. And we know, for instance, that Edith had fudged a bit on her age on other passports. And so We took all of that into account, but I think she may have even listed herself as slightly shorter than she actually was. And so we had to kind of play with measurements a little bit to make sure the dimensions looked right. But it was a really interesting. It was sort of like a forensic detective work.
1: And I have to know, is there a particular piece in the exhibit that was special to you or that was really interesting to discover and research?
0: I think one thing that I really love, um, there is a dress that, we have from engagement photographs of Edith. And it's this beautiful velvet. It's very clear in the photos that it's a deep color. And we've come to find out that it's sort of midnight blue. And there's some phenomenal jewelry that she wears. And we had, through our research, we had found that it was part of a, per- or a jewelry set that George had given Edith for their engagement. And it was actually, he gave her three pieces, and this is just a brooch that she wore, a very large brooch. And through research, while we don't have it in our collection anymore, through research, we found that there were still amazing archival records of it. We know that George purchased it for her on May 7th, 1898, so not long after they were engaged. And we actually researched back to where it was originally made, which is still in existence at uh, Boucheron in Paris. And they had not only listing all of the carrots, all of the cuts, but they actually had a very high resolution picture of the brooch of the entire set before George purchased it. Oh my gosh. It's so amazing. And so we were able to recreate this ruby and diamond brooch with Martin Adams, who's a very well-known jeweler for the film world. He makes hand props and jewelry, kind of any piece of jewelry, you know, the crown for the crown and (laughs) um, the the hand props for the wands for Harry Potter. And Martin Adams has just done tremendous work. And he was able to remake this for us. And wow. it, for instance, there are 78 carats of jewels. In this, they're recreations. Of course, we're not using real diamonds and rubies, but he was able to use their archival information and create a near duplicate for us. And it just sparkles like the real thing. And it it really allows us to tell their engagement story and kind of the romance that they had, and just to imagine how how special that moment would have been. Um, having this piece recreated allows us to tell that story even a little better than we were able to before.
1: Right. And I will absolutely dress listeners post images of these displays in Biltmore's exhibit. And this particular dress is displayed with the recreated jewels. And then she's also next to her uh, fiancé, who's also dressed accordingly. So it's just really incredible once you see these images come to life. And also within Biltmore's setting, which is incredible. So it's a little hard for me to pick just a few favorite pieces from the exhibit. It's all so wonderful. But one of my favorites... Of the recreations is the butterfly dress that was worn by George's sister, Florence Trompley. So, can you tell us a little bit about what went into recreating that? Sure. So,
0: as you mentioned, Florence was George's sister, and she married Hamilton Twombley. They had a home in Florham, New Jersey that still exists. It's part of Farley Dickinson University. And there are photographs of her, but we had one special one in our archives where she was wearing this exquisite dress around. 1899, 1900, just this, you can tell, even though it's black and white, you can tell the silk's just exquisite. The structure of the sleeves is exceptional. And one of my colleagues did a little more research and found, so ours is the photograph that we have is just from the bust up and it has these exquisitely embroidered and beaded butterflies on the bodice, but one of my colleagues found a three quarters length photograph of her wearing this dress. And while we're not sure that she wore it at Baltimore, it's certainly the same time she and George were close. They you know, were often guests at each other's homes or interacted with each other at others' homes. So he certainly, I would suspect, had seen Florence in this dress, if not here elsewhere. And it was so spectacular that we really felt that it would be ashamed not to recreate it and through the f- photographs that we had in our archives we also found a correlation with a piece that's at the Metropolitan Museum in their collection and then Cosprop had actually tracked down another version of this dress which was in kind of light blue and ivory that had sold privately in the early 2000s. And we used these extant dresses, the Mets collection and this this other one to recreate the dress. And through our research, we actually found that it was a House of Worth dress. And we were able to scale the butterflies for the embroidery off the original, really able to blow those pictures up and get real detailed inside into the construction of it, the embroidery, the beading. And we tried to recreate all of those elements down to where even the butterflies are placed. Um, so they look as if they're sort of flying up the skirt. And there's a real sense of movement and motion in it. It's a beautiful design. And John and his team put countless hours of work. I can't even quite imagine how much um, into recreating this dress. And it's hard to believe it's it didn't come from the House of Worth.
1: Yeah, and it's absolutely exquisite. And this dress is on display in, what's it called? The Grand Dining Hall at Biltmore? in the Banquet Hall. The Banquet, hall. The banquet hall, so two, this two-story, incredibly beautiful beautiful banquet hall. And that dress is displayed along with other evening gowns from the same era. So it's just incredibly beautiful. And you really can tell the amount of work and thought that went into recreating that Worth gown. And as you know, Leslie, Edith herself was a client of the House of Worth. And she was a client of many Parisian couturiers. And she was really quite the fashionista, was she not?
0: Sure, she really was. She, throughout her life, was really interested in fashion. She had quite the figure for it. As we mentioned, she was quite tall, um, very thin, particularly with a corseted waist, um, and really was almost a walking fashion plate in so many ways, but was wearing um, House of Worth from a very young age. Um, Really... Loving other designers as well. There are still some dresses in the collection of RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, that are so worth looking. They're very well documented photographically, and they put together an exhibition a few years ago called um, Golden Glamour. And that is worth looking at because there are several examples from Poré, from Calaisur, from even some fabulous gloves from Schiaparelli. Um, She was interested in fashion throughout her life. We have in our collection still magazines that she looked at, illustrations that she looked at. And and you can see with all of the photography that we have in our collection that her taste is keeping up with the times. And she was really known in the press as someone, even as she aged, who was really keeping up with the latest of fashion.
1: Yeah, I really love that sense of style that she carries into her older age because even in the 1920s, she's adopting the more, you know, not necessarily the most avant-garde of fashion, but she is wearing the new silhouettes and styles and can really tell that she had a love and imagination for the clothing that she wore.
0: We were so lucky a few years ago to make a discovery within our collection and find a few more pieces of hers from the 20s, including some more poré, fortuny, incredible pieces that we didn't even know still existed. So it's so interesting that into the 20s and 30s, she's wearing sort of the latest, the cutting edge designs.
1: Yeah, it's really incredible. That Poiret coat that's at RISD is one of my favorite. And the Scaparelli gloves that you mentioned, of course. But not everything is high glamour when it comes to Biltmore. And Biltmore is particularly special in that it always, every exhibition I've been to highlights every aspect of life at Biltmore. And I really relate the most with the various staff members uh, that worked there, of which you know so very much about. And I loved the story that you shared with me about Edith's ladies' maid. Can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. So the servant stories are some of my favorite too. I think when you walk through Biltmore House, one of the parts that feels the most alive is the servants' quarters, and you can imagine what life would have been like that um, in those areas. And we have a, quite a few stories of people who worked here, particularly women who worked here. And it would have been common at the time period that Edith would have had a Parisian lady's maid. That was sort of the thing to do. It was seen as very fashionable. Um, it would have made sense because Edith spent much of her a later youth growing up in Paris and in the in France. And so you would think that she would have adopted that custom and had a, a Parisian ladies' maid. But interestingly, Edith had a variety. Um, we know that she had a lady's maid named Marta Laub, um, a German lady's maid for a period of time. I think my favorite is that she was actually interested in having women from the area, from this really kind of remote mountain area work as her ladies' maid. And she would invite them to travel with her. They would have been dressed quite well because they would have been partaking in, you know, different aspects of society. Um, but so there was a woman who remembered that Edith invited her to travel abroad and her family wasn't quite comfortable with that. So she ended up staying and she ended up marrying someone on the estate instead and staying here. But Edith really tried to create opportunities for women and took them with her where wherever she went.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the really wonderful things about George and Edith is how much they really cared for uh, and took care of their staff and everyone who worked for them. I think that's a really cool element of their legacy.
0: I agree. It's something really interesting to see. And in fact, we have p- people on the estate who have been working here for I even mean, five generations that their families have been involved with this estate back to that time period, which is just mind-blowing to me, um, but very special as well.
1: So one of the really cool displays is of Edith interacting with one of her head housekeepers. And I'm not sure, was that that, that in the drawing room? It was in the Oak Sitting Room, which is the... Oh, the Oak Sitting Room, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And this is a private space between Mr. and Mrs. Vanderbilt's bedrooms. Your listeners will probably be aware, even from shows like Downton Abbey, that there were often separate bedrooms for ladies and gentlemen, even when married. But So that's the case at Biltmore as well. But there's a private living room, I guess you would call it, in between them. And there's a call button in the Oak Sitting Room. Or Mrs. King. And so we think that um, Edith, or perhaps George, but more often Edith would summon her to the space and they would meet for the day and, and work out the day's plans, what would be happening where, adjust any dinner menus, and just go over everything so that it all worked very smoothly. And we wanted very much to show not only the Vanderbilts and their guests, but servant life here and the interactions between the family and the staff. And Mrs. King is a really good way for us to do that because we know quite a bit about her and we know a lot about what her work would have entailed. And so we were able to show that um, through incorporating the costumes and kind of this exchange between them.
1: Yeah. Can you please tell us about that wonderful Chatelaine that she's wearing, which is essentially all of her keys for the entire (laughs) estate? (laughs)
0: <laughs> sure. The, and shuttle are fascinating to me. Um, they're basically rather than where we would keep pockets, you know, what we would keep in pockets. So where we might keep, you know, of course they could keep some things having to do with scissors or sewing with them. Sort of women from all walks of lives wore them, but housekeepers in particular wore these very large shuttle so that they had tools that they would need and particularly keys. And so I wanted to Convey the sense of Mrs. King's responsibilities, and you know she wouldn't. She would have had keys. She would have been able to access all the doors. And I will tell you that our even our current day key it's a chore to keep track of keys here because there are so many. There we have over 250 rooms, and many of those have more than two or three closets. So <laughs> everything has a different key. So I wanted to really convey kind of the sense of her responsibilities and what she would have had. So while she doesn't have keys to 250 rooms, she has quite a bit um, that she would have been carrying with her in order to get into special spaces, linen closets and things like that. Cause she of course would have kept track of all of that as well. And so I did quite a bit of research. Um, and I actually spoke with a woman in Sydney, Australia named Janet Cummins, who is an expert in such matters. And she kind of helped me think about, what would have been appropriate, what she would have had with her. We looked at other examples from the period, and we were able to put that together.
1: Yeah, it's it's really cool to learn those sort of and notice those sort of details that you took a lot of time and effort to put into this exhibition.
2: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
1: So I've toured Biltmore probably about 10 times now, and I have a few favorite rooms. Edith's suite of rooms, of course, is incredible, but also downstairs. And downstairs is my absolute favorite. That's where the kitchen is, where the two-storied butler's pantry is, the ironing room, the laundry room, and of course, as you mentioned earlier, the pool.
0: Yeah, the pool is absolutely (laughs) incredible. And to think, one of my favorite things, so Biltmore is built in 1895, and it had electricity from the very beginning. And I think the thing that blew me away the first time I came to Biltmore before I ever worked here was that in the pool, there is underwater electric lighting. And that just in a time period where most people didn't have electricity, a lot of people didn't have plumbing that there would be not only a 70,000 gallon pool but one with electric under you know <laughs> underwater lighting blew me away. And so we wanted very much to show what swimwear would have been like in the period and to convey the idea that men would have been using the pool but also ladies would be using the pool and that's something that you you know you see bathing beauties on the beach and that sort of thing. But you very rarely do you see an indoor pool and you certainly don't see women using it. And so that's something we really wanted to show. Um, So we have two swimsuits in the pool right now, one from about 1905 and one from about 1910 or maybe a little bit later that just kind of shows the progression of fashion. I also love that we have one that's a very small, probably like a modern day size four or six and one that's more like a modern day size 14 or 16. And I just love to show that indeed there were women of different sizes and everyone was enjoying activities like that. It's been so fun to bring that particular area um, to have a little more activity going on and to see what they would have been wearing down to the little swim boots.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you also have a woman that's working out in the workout room, which is wonderful. Because again, you would expect to see a man working out there, but not necessarily a woman.
0: And we took a little bit of liberty because in this case, we don't have archival documentation of women using the gymnasium. So the gymnasium is an original part. And I think originally would have been used only by the men. But when you do research into this era, physical fitness was very much a part of women's lives and many of the women who were coming to Biltmore were progressive in nature and we know that Edith was very interested in recreational activities and you know driving horses and jumping horses and was very physically active and so in putting together research we determined that this was certainly going on across the country and uh, in women's colleges women's athletics were really growing and so we really wanted to show what women were wearing in this period to engage in more physical activities. And the gymnasium sort of was the best place to be doing that. And I love to see it. It's fascinating. To, you know, I've seen pictures of women in the pantaloon outfits playing basketball, but to see it in person, be able to imagine that is really fun.
1: Right. And like I said, the pool and then the gymnasium, all of these kind of exciting. There's a bowling alley downstairs. It's just my favorite area because it's full of surprises.
0: (laughs) It's around every corner. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) because it's also the site of the colorfully painted Halloween room, which was the site of Cornelia's 21st birthday extravaganza. I'm hoping you can bring that night to life for us a little bit because it's wonderful.
0: So it's actually from a period that's a a little bit different. So there was a really big party um, for Cornelia's 21st birthday, that was a fancy dress party. And this is fancy dress parties were so popular at Biltmore. This was one from slightly later. It was actually for New Year's of 1925. That room that's it's a room that's just covered with murals across the walls. And we've always called it the Halloween room because it has cats and bats and witches and and kind of spooky things. And we don't know at what point. It was starting to be called the Halloween Room, but I made a discovery a few years ago, which was, I think, my favorite discovery at Biltmore, that this actually was painted for a New Year's party in 1925. So it was just after Cornelia was married, the year after she was married, and they held a gypsy-themed ball on December 30th of 1925 as part of a New Year's house party.
1: Wow. The
0: murals on the wall had always looked really interesting to me, and they had reminded me of some of the um, really avant-garde Russian theatrical painters, um, but I'd never quite made the connection. And I was reading an autobiography of a local man that I admired, and it helped me put everything together because he he made a, a reference, and he had misspelled it, but he made a reference to something called the Chauve which I recognized from earlier interests that was a a Russian avant-garde cabaret. And when I started doing a little bit of research, I found the program to this cabaret. And lo and behold, the imagery on the inside of this program, the set designs... Um, correlated exactly to the walls in Biltmore House. And so they had basically taken the program of these set designs and these different set pieces and painted them on the walls of this former storage room in Biltmore House and then thrown this kind of gypsy-themed musical performance party. And interestingly enough, After I put together which set piece went with what sort of music, we actually have the player piano rolls for each of the songs in our collection as well. So we can kind of put together even what the party sounded like that night. Um, And it's so fun. And we know he talked about all kinds of gypsy atmosphere, such as cauldrons and pots and glowing fire all around, and that he and his wife— attended the gypsy dance at Biltmore House, which was the best party he has ever attended. So wow. it's very fun to put all together.
1: Yeah. And you can, it turns out Edith was quite fond of fancy dress and you can learn more about Cornelia's birthday party, but also the other fancy dress events that happen at the Legacy Museum on the Biltmore property. And I really loved learning that Edith and her sisters did tableau vivants in their youth, and it's something that she passed on to her daughter. So can you tell us a little bit more, actually, about what tableau vivants are, because they're really popular during this period? Um, Actually, starting in the 18th century, I would say, is when they became popular, and they're still being practiced into the early 20th century. But tell us about tableau vivants, and then a little bit about Edith's wonderful white peacock costume.
0: Oh, sure. I think it's one of my favorite things. Um, So as you mentioned, so Edith had loved sort of dressing up. She'd been involved in theatrical parties, in a, a picnic group that put together plays and different things in France, and then really brought that back, her interest, and started it here at Biltmore and made it really part of her life and her life with her daughter as well. So for different parties, different years, especially more um, in the late teens and early twenties, this was something that they did at Biltmore, and basically they're like living pictures or living moments in history, where through theatrical lighting and full costuming, they would reenact you know scenes that are very recognizable, so scenes from uh, Romeo and Juliet or biblical scenes or Cleopatra, and there would be large programs, so every guest of the house party would be assigned a a scene and they would interact it and kind of hold the pose. And sometimes you can see these still today. Um, I saw one online where they were reenacting Caravaggio paintings not too long ago. So it's still an activity that's out there, but this was very much part of entertaining at Biltmore. And in the early 20s, um, they put together one where they clearly wanted to recreate the Garden of the White Peacock. And Edith apparently was very interested in Ziegfeld Follies, even contacted the Zigfield Follies about. Borrowing a fairly well known peacock costume, and the Follies declined, but advised her on what sort of materials would be available. Put her in touch with uh, Daisian, which is a theatrical company that's still in existence. And so, we actually know what kind of materials she ordered to create her own version of this white peacock. And it is a fabulous. Um, We have pictures of her wearing it. And it's just fabulous construction with very large tail. It's kind of a lace tail with sequins that can open up and close. And she's wearing very short shorts and kind of figure revealing outfit with it and a fabulous turban that Edith's often wearing fabulous turbans. And so it's so interesting to see the idea, the creativity trying to borrow it from somewhere very well known like Zigfield Follies um, and then her efforts to recreate it just for the single house party it's so fun. We actually have pictures also of her and Cleopatra. We have pictures of a very young Cornelia interacting with adults um, and being part of these tableau vivants. So it's a wonderful part of Biltmore's history.
1: It really is. And that white peacock Ziegfeld Folly costume you're referring to is actually designed by Lucille Lady Duff Gordon when she was a designer for Ziegfeld Follies. And it was worn quite majestically and famously by one of the very first supermodels, Dolores. So I'll be sure and post an image of that as well because it's incredible. So it should be said that at this point that Edith is the white peacock and they're throwing these parties, uh, fancy dress parties in the twenties that George had sadly passed away. He died in 1914, just before the outbreak of World War One. Edith was of course heartbroken, but like so many newly widowed women, she really threw herself into World War One war work. And I'm hoping you can maybe tell us a little bit about her work during that period. Sure.
0: And it's a, it's a, fascinating moment in time. So of course, Sir George passed away in 1914. And so there was really a period of dormancy at the house, um, and really on, on the estate, just after his death. And the tableau Vivants and those parties started later, kind of in the 20s. But during this period, so Edith went, took Cornelia and went right away to Europe. She had a sister living in Europe. And as I had mentioned, she had spent a lot of her youth in France. And I think she felt very much at home there and was able to kind of get away from things. Um, But war broke out right away. Um, She and Cornelia had a pretty harrowing time trying to get passage home. they fled from Paris to London in search of passage and ultimately came back on the Lusitania in September. Um, This is just about eight months later that the Lusitania was sunken. So it was just definitely a very dramatic and traumatic moment. And I think probably their seeing that firsthand really threw them into war efforts. And they really put war relief. It was what they concentrated on. So not only was Edith involved in textiles in the area and had leagues of people put together, organized to um, be knitting socks for the troops, but she also was investing. She was one of, right after the U.S. entered the war, the the government issued the first bonds sold to citizens that helped to raise funds to support war efforts, called Liberty Bonds. Edith invested very heavily in them, buying $70,000 worth of bonds, which is certainly the highest in in this area. She supported troops and brought more than a thousand troops. For training drills and entertainment on the estate as a way to kind of get out of their daily activities, but still be building skills and team supports. She did a lot of work for orphans um, that had been, had, who had lost their parents during the war, particularly concentrating on Belgium. And she eventually was awarded the Medal of Honor by Queen Elizabeth of Belgium. Um, in recognition for her relief of suffering of war victims and her support of the Allied forces. And so this was very central to her life in in this period um, through the early teens. And just so interesting where this is a woman who could have chosen to pursue any interest and really focusing on that work was what she chose.
1: And there was numerous staff members of Biltmore that went to war and not all of them came back. And I think it's commemorated actually in a flag that still hangs today in the banquet hall. Mm-hmm. For
0: those who did go, she promised that when they returned, their jobs would be saved and waiting for them at Biltmore. And in every case, that, that proved to be true for everyone who returned.
1: So Edith remarried in 1925 and she left Biltmore for Cornelia and her husband to live in. And it has subsequently been passed down through the generation's remaining privately owned and operated by the Vanderbilt family to this day. So, Leslie, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us the legacy of George and Edith and Biltmore. It's truly
2: my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Cassidy. Cass, that sounded like a truly incredible exhibition.
1: It truly is. And those of you that still have time to see it, you can check it out until May 27th. I really can't say enough wonderful things about Biltmore. It's a magical place. It's unlike any place I've ever been in my life. And every time I've been there, I'm transported to another time. That is truly wonderful. And April, I'm very excited about the guest of next week's podcast because during my time at Biltmore, I had the distinctive honor of interviewing John Bright himself. He has been working in the industry since the 1960s, and his house has produced costumes for basically any period film and TV show you can imagine.
2: And he is also a fashion historian in his own right. He has an incredible collection of historic garments and accessories that he uses to inform the accuracy
1: of his and others' costume designs. Right. And he is an incredibly fascinating man, and I cannot wait to share his story with everyone next week.
2: Thank you all for listening today. If you have a chance, you can still see the exhibition at Biltmore, and it runs through May 27th, 2019. And until next time, may you consider the social customs and traditions in the clothing you wear next time you get dressed.
1: And remember, dress listeners, to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions each week from you, our listeners. And we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct messages on
2: Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you can find images that accompany each week's episode. Dress underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook
1: at dress podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at teepublic.com forward slash dress. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dress. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. See you Thursday. Bye. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly.